Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books in Israel Studies, a podcast channel of the New Books Network. Today we are talking to Dr. Kfir Cohen Lustig about his book, Makers of Words, Readers of Signs, Israeli and Palestinian Literature of the Global Contemporary. The book offers a reconsideration of the history of Israeli and Palestinian literature in the context of globalization and suggests a new theory of global literature. Cohen Lustig argues for a novel theoretical and historical approach to Israeli and Palestinian literature by tying the shift in literary form and the concept of freedom in the late 1980s to the global transition to neoliberalism. This allows connecting Israeli and Palestinian literature to global literature and see it in a new light that goes beyond the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Phil Cohen Lustig, welcome and congratulations on the publication of your book. Hi, Yako. Thank you very much. Very happy to be with you. Well, uh, one of the major steps you are taking in the book is offering a new periodization of both Israeli and Palestinian literature. To understand this, can you maybe first describe the way in which the mainstream history of Israeli literature, of which you are critical, narrates this history? Right. So basically, we refer to the 1970s with the studies of Gershon Shaked with his uh, five-volume history of the history of uh, Hebrew literature. And we periodize Hebrew literature uh, through his understanding of, which is global, of course, many people do that, uh, but he established it in Israeli literature, of, the, of periodizing according to a generation of writers, usually lasting like 10 years or uh, something like that. So if you look at the histories of Hebrew literature, you would see it divided into uh, the literature of the 40s and 50s, literature of the 60s and then 70s and 80s. So each decade, more or less, you have a different style and a different generation of writers that are occupied mostly with uh, different ideological um, uh, concerns. And sometimes it also manifests stylistic changes. So this, uh, what's interesting about this periodization is that even those who are critical of Shaked and have a different kind of uh, position vis-a-vis, ideological position vis-a-vis Israeli literature, he's considered a Zionist. That is, even people working with post-colonial and uh, positions critical of Zionism still refer and use this kind of decade periodization. So... And I thought that this is unsatisfying for many different reasons mm-hmm. and divided the history of Hebrew literature into two periods mm-hmm. to something like uh, one period from the 1940s, even before the establishment of Israel, until the neoliberal change the, around the mid 80s, which continues until today. So mm-hmm. we have a period of 40 years. And then another period that started something like 30 years ago. I see. Uh, before we go into your uh, argument itself, can you just uh, tell us how the mainstream view, which you're critical of, again, see the connection between these two literatures, the Israeli and Palestinian? Right. So 
I mean, it's a, it's a known fact that most Israeli scholar, literary scholars working on Hebrew literatures don't really work on Palestinian literature systematically because with the, there was a problem with, uh, with the study of Arabic. Mm-hmm. So usually the, the way that people study it is ad hoc by referring to a, this novel or that novel. Uh, Anton Shamas' Anton uh, Arabesque is one novel, for example, that people write about. Mm-hmm. The category that they work with is nationalism. So they consider, um, they, when they talk about Israeli and Palestinian literature, they will compare those writers who are critical of Zionist nationalism, and they will find similarities in Israeli writers uh, or Jewish writers and Palestinian writers vis-a-vis their position, their critical position vis-a-vis nationalism. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is not the way that I do things. I see. And, and by the way, are we talking about Hebrew and Arabic literature as Israeli and Palestinian, or are there cross- Uh, uh, approaches where Palestinian literature can be written in Hebrew and and Israeli literature written in Arabic. Right. So the, there are very few cases in which there are these crossings. You have several writers uh, of, you have Palestinian writers living in Israel who will write uh, in Hebrew, like Anton Shamas is one of them. Mm-hmm. And you have sometimes, um, you have Samir Nakash, I believe, that writes in Arabic, right? Yes. Um, so you have these uh, crossovers uh, they're very rare uh, but still in my understanding of uh, how do I understand Israeli and Palestine, Israeli Palestine literature we'll get to that you'll see that it doesn't matter so you can um, you can still understand them even if they have writers even if they write in the language that is not supposed to supposed to be the national language of the world I see all right so now we can finally approach your main argument which you just touched upon briefly before you How do you suggest we should periodize the these two literatures and uh, understand the development so the the main kind of displacement that I'm offering is shifting away from nationalism basically the the literary field as I just described divides israel let's talk about for example Israeli literature it divides novelists according to the ideological position vis-a-vis nationalism so that leads into some kind of a synchronic understanding of Where you have those writers that are a pro Zionist and those who are critical and those who are ambivalent let's say Samhizhar is one of those writers I'm suggesting that nationalism is not a useful analytic category I will, I will explain later for whom it's important I divided the period as I said to two kind of broad 40-year periods according to a category I call social formation or social form and And that means that instead of looking at nationalism, you look at the structure of Israeli society and you periodize shifts in the structure. So the structure in Israeli literature began at the first period from the 1940s, even a bit earlier, to 85 is what I call the status structure, in which you have a very strong top-down society that is uh, ruled by Mapai. From, from people who say from colonial reasons that implicated the private and the public and that the state itself kind of steers the economy and there can be no serious kind of private sector that is not and the economy is kind of um, directed from above and then from the 80 from 89, 1985 with privatizations and the aggressive entry of neoliberal reform, To, uh, Israeli uh, society then you have a more market society and a capitalist society obviously this takes time but you see this kind of separation between private and public and different kinds of political problems so so the argument is just to clarify 
The argument is that the actual art of writing, the actual act of uh, 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 bringing one's thought to the paper is in a sense determined by the social forms or I even say what it, by the economy surrounding that person. Okay, so here I'm very careful because there is a long kind of historical criticism uh, around the idea of determination. So it's associated with sort of Marxist thought. And usually when you say determination, it leaves out the agency of the writer and sometimes the agency of the novel, as it were, and people don't like it. And I think that it's much better to use the term condition. I see. And in a, and. And this is, goes to your understanding of history and to your understanding of literature and to understanding of what is human agency. This is kind of the philosophical debate that I'm entering in the beginning of my book in the introduction. Yes. So basically, I believe that when people write novels, as Marx says, people make history, but not out of their, not as they please. So there are always conditions in place that condition what they do and how they think. But these are not determining condition in the sense that it limits what you can, it, it kind of completely uh, limits completely what you can do. Mm-hmm. It puts certain conditions on what you can think politically, at least in terms of literature. Mm-hmm. So I'm thinking that if you want to periodize, you have to periodize the conditions under which uh, novels are written and the political positions that are elaborated in them are, are kind of evolve around it. So just to give me, I will give you one example. Yes. And this is where I move to the second concept. So the first concept is a social form, which act as a kind of conditioning mm-hmm. uh, political thought and writing. The second one is the concept of freedom. Yes. And what I argue is that in those two period, you have two different concepts of two dominant concepts of freedom. What is interesting about Zionist, about this first period is that unlike the liberal West, Freedom in the first period, because of the colonial situation, because of the stated structure, freedom is not an a priori property of a liberal individual subject. Mm-hmm. Freedom is an outcome. First of all, it's collective. And more importantly, it's an outcome of making. Mm-hmm. So Zionists understood that in order to make their freedom, in order to their autonomy, even if it, even if it involved kind of um, occupying, taking over the land, displacing Palestinians from the labor market, and so on and so forth, which involved a series of violent acts, mm-hmm. these had to move through constituting and making Jewish autonomy. So Jewish autonomy was something that had to be made in the world through antagonistic conflict with the other, in this case, Palestinians, nature, and even uh, Mizrahis and other, other people considered others. Mm-hmm. This would differentiate Israeli literature from other literatures, uh, from Western literature at the time, which for whom freedom is a liberal aspect of the individual, meaning already made property. Mm-hmm. Now, once you have this kind of concept of freedom as a dominant, you see, I, then you can differentiate positions in the field. So Zionist writers, who we associate with the Palmach generation or the generation of the, of the, of the 40s, is the generation that accepted this notion of freedom. And therefore, their novels are usually constructed around a constitutive conflict between, uh, you'd say, uh, Jews and Arabs or between different kinds of groups in Israel. Through uh, the Freedom is supposed to be the result of that antagonism. But then you have more liberal and more humanist writers that are beginning to write uh, more so in the 50s, but they exist from the beginning in 60s, like Elizabeth Yeshua, Amos Oz, 
Amalek Hanna Karmun, and a host of others who are associated with the modernist stance in the 60s. They, what is interesting about them is not that they write simply in modernist styles, but they are trying to evolve and develop a different concept of freedom, which is a liberal one. Mm-hmm. Meaning they try to invent kind of a subject who is separated in a way from the political conditions that uh, constitute Israeli society and uh, live uh, kind of a private life, usually involves psychic states, kind of psychological states. Now, this is a known argument. What I'm saying, which is new, is that precisely because of this conditioning, because of the social structure not allowing you to develop this kind of freedom, it was not grounded in social real institutions, these writers had to develop a more abstract way of writing, meaning that they gained their liberal autonomy only by abstracting the individual from the conditions that make it what it is. And so this is kind of a new argument that uh, allows me to say that in actuality, while other critics are saying that literature from the 60s is around the individual, is kind of occupied with individual kind of concerns, in fact, it was always a failed project. This individuality could not have evolved because of the historical conditions of what I call statism, or that we just described as a social structure that kind of uh, keeps together the private and the public. I, I, I want to just uh, press a little, uh, a little more on this question of the relations between uh, uh, the conditioning and the individual, or what some others would uh, frame as an issue of identity. So just to make clear, to what degree does... Uh, the personal history or the identity or the political views of uh, of the writer um, influence the way that he or she correspond with these uh, formations or conditioning. For example, just uh, uh, to clarify my question, would we expect Shimon Balas in the 1940s to not accept the Zionist idea that liberation is through a collective Jewish antagonistic relations or in the in the second period post-neoliberalism, would we expect, uh, uh, let's say, uh, leftist-thinking writers to oppose the neoliberal obstruction of this subject? Okay, so it's, a, it's a wonderful question. So if you take uh, what's interesting about um, Shimon Balas is that you, have, you situate him in his time. And you're saying uh, for him, to the, the political position that he took in the first novel, he changed his position a little bit later on. Mm-hmm. So there actually his kind of style was predicated on the idea that freedom, Mizrahi freedom in this case, is also an object of making. It involves antagonism with, in the, in the particular case of the Ma'abara, the transit camp where uh, usually Iraqi Jews had to form some all kinds of political structures in order to gain their autonomy and to direct their lives. However, you would, the problem that Balas faced is that it is impossible for Mizrahi collectivity to, uh, to pursue their kind of claims for freedom and autonomy because they don't have their conditions for freedom is not really existing yet, meaning he did not choose an outright struggle, let's say like Palestinians do, right? So for him, the political solution, right, was the only political solution available was to opt for some kind of an election where you have a democratic process, as it were, and then uh, Mizrahi uh, Jews, usually Iraqi Jews, somehow elect and produce 
democratic institutions that can then uh, integrate into the state and claim their kind of more liberal progressive uh, um, rights. So for, so for Balas, he will be conditioned by the fact that although uh, he wants, he advances a political position that differs from many Ashkenazi writers, he still is conditioned by the fact that there is no separate Mizrahi collective that can constitute separately uh, its own living conditions like the Palestinian would try to do. So this is how the social structure conditions what you can think mm-hmm. and what political kind of solutions you can offer. Now, if you move to the 80s, what's happening there is you have now a more dominant liberal kind of conception of freedom, which here freedom is no longer something to be made. Freedom is first individualistic, and it's an ready-made property of the subject, where you see a separation of the private and the public. Now, those writers, what's interesting about them, that resist neoliberalism because there are no collective kind of uh, figurations of people who resist neoliberalism, but only individualist one. What you have usually is a kind of an individual who then crosses these political positions that he faces. And instead of changing them, he or she, usually the character, usually maps them mm-hmm. and tells you these are the conditions in which we live. This is resistance in a neoliberal age, usually the mapping. It's very rare that you see in post-1985 novels where you have a collective fighting to constitute new conditions of life. I see. And uh, just to clarify, your book focuses on the writing, not necessarily on the reception, the way the audiences understand or uh, misunderstand maybe uh, these issues of uh, uh, well, subjectivity and freedom. Right. I, I, I mean, sometimes I definitely I refer to how novels were read, so to, re- to use them or criticize them, but I'm not dealing with reception. I'm not dealing with so much with reception. I mean, I do mention the fact that Shimon Balas was badly received because he's Mizrahi and, uh, you know, people wrote about him, this and that, but it's not so much something that I deal with, no. I see. All right. Now, we've focused until now mostly on the uh, Israeli uh, side of things. And so just uh, in terms of history, what uh, happens in Israel in the 1980s, the, this uh, onset of neoliberalism is kind of delayed in the Palestinian case, right? We're talking post-Oslo in the Palestinian case. Right, right. So let me just say, just want to clarify one thing about the Palestinian literature in the first period. There, I, I, I say again that you can trace it from 1948 to 1993. Mm-hmm. And there again, you will see definitely with Palestinian liberation that freedom is obviously collective and it's a project of making. That's why m- many uh, Palestinian novels in this, not all of them, but many who choose resistance are those who uh, understand that freedom is an, uh, is an outcome of a struggle. Mm-hmm. Uh, from uh, Then it happens later in 93, but, in, but uh, just before the, the shift, just a second. So this allows me, by the way, to show that although Israeli and Palestinian literature are very different from one another, they still have the same concept of freedom, meaning for both of them, despite their different nationalities and despite their different conditions, they have the same concept of freedom, which sometimes is not obvious to literary critics. Uh Um, Now, you asked why the delayed in the Palestinian case. I believe that there the entry of neoliberalism was simply, um, it was not, in Israel, it came about with a particular kind of economic crisis that allowed um, uh, politicians and economists and, and American advisors to kind of advise and bring forward a different economic plan. And with 
Palestine, it was entering through the Oslo with the Oslo p- p- peace agreement. Mm-hmm. So it's an accident of history why this happened exactly there. It begins there, obviously. It's not. It's not. It's not a. You don't turn a switch. It just begins in '93 because then it comes with uh, all kinds of stipulation of the peace process. I see. Now, uh, two terms that are peppered throughout our discussion and are still left somewhat, uh, uh, how would I say, abstract, are globalization and neoliberalism. Uh, can you maybe explain what you mean when you use these terms? What uh, do they uh, signify? Yes. So there are several ways to talk about uh, globalization. So let me just, just kind of make a few distinctions. Basically, there are those people who argue that you can take globalization like Andre Gooden Frank 5,000 years earlier, and people always traded um, commodities uh, between and across the world. And if you follow immigration, you can situate it very early on in human history. And some people will say that globalization can begin only, let's say, seriously from the 16th century, and then maybe at the end of the 19th century, and maybe... Uh, later on, so people sometimes talk about waves of globalization when they when they mention by it. What they mention by it is usually the connectivity mm-hmm. uh, between different places around the world, world, moving through trade and immigration. I chose a different way to understand globalization as something far uh, recent, and this is where neoliberalism becomes very important. Mm-hmm. So, by neoliberalism, I talk of a particular historical moment, a stage of late capitalism, in which. If you had, up until the 1970s, especially from the 1945 and 1970s, you had in the Western world a Keynesian model that allows the state to kind of pursue substantial social and political ends that are not necessarily uh, subordinated to the market and to the value value principle or the profit principle. With neoliberalism, you see a shift towards a social structure that we usually say that it's the that kind of attacks the state, although the state is, of course, very operative in neoliberalism. What neoliberalism does is that it subordinates substantive social and political ends to the principle of profit. Mm-hmm. This is where the historical change is coming. So in the, the example of Israel and Palestine, this is very clear. If until 1985, the state, even though it's grounded on a colonial structure, it had a lot of inequality, and so on and so forth, it still developed its economy and developed its social services according to some kind of a collective and the collective needs of the collective itself. Mm-hmm. Therefore, you didn't have a full-blown uh, capitalism in Israel. It always was what they call sometimes a mixed economy or a eco- private economy that is tethered to the state. Mm-hmm. From 85 onwards, you see more and more that such kind of collective substantial political concerns are now subordinated to uh, stipulations from the market. If it's not profitable, they cannot invest. So decisions about establishing factories, in, uh, importing or exporting certain things will no longer be necessarily tied to some collective concerns. You see this obviously in Palestine as well. Mm-hmm. So by neoliberal globalization, this is how I qualify globalization, something specific for me that starts in the 1970s where you see a shift and the subordinate of, of this kind of shift that I'm talking about that is happening in more and more places all over the world. I see. And now, this provides you with a basis for a new theory of global literature. Can you please explain the term and, uh, uh, and, and your argument in this regard? Right. So in the, in the current scholarship, people work with the term world literature, 
And there, they, people in the humanities, they will talk mostly about literary scholars. What they do in order to show that literature should not simply be understood in national terms, they show how literary forms, such as realism and modernism, travel around the world, and these forms are domesticated. So you have a certain Balzacian realism that arrives in Brazil, and then Brazilian literature imports these kind of forms and uh, changes accordingly. But because Brazil is different from France, then you have the domestication of the form because it does not fit exactly with the Western form. The same thing in Israeli modernism in the 60s. You borrow certain modernist forms from France and from England and from the United States, like Arabic Yeshua borrows from Faulkner, and Yeshoyao Cohen borrows from Rogrier um, uh, in France. So you have a movement of literary form that is domesticated because the life in Israel and life in France are different. However, I work with a concept of global literature in which allows me to say that I'm not so much interested in the circulation of forms because what happens from the 1970s onwards, what you see is that social forms themselves travel. That is to say, now life in Brazil and life in the U.S. and life in Israel, life in Palestine, although not identical, become to have, begin to have similar what I call equivalent social conditions meaning the, separate of the, the separation of the private and the public, the emergence of a liberal subject, and all kinds of other um, uh, characteristics that I talk about. If this is the case, then all of a sudden you can talk about a global world that is, though different locally, still shares certain abstract conditions. This allows you to see similarities between Brazilian, Israeli, Palestinian, Moroccan, Nigerian literature, although they are not in touch with one another, they still will exhibit similar literary forms or similar political problems that they obviously solve locally, but they still contend with similar global issues. I see. Fascinating. Um, can I ask you now to please go beyond the boundaries of what your book is immediately about and suggest how your argument helps us understand the current makeup of Israeli and Palestinian realities? That's interesting. Yeah. Well, I will be more careful here because this is not my the immediate um, kind of field of my re research. Obviously, I, I my research is interdisciplinary, so I do uh, I, I have to read these kind of accounts. So my sense is how I understand the liberal changes in Israel and Palestine is that more and more in it. We'll talk about for a second in Israel. More and more, you have the sense of a population that is more and more separated from the political conditions that make it what it is. So this is kind of counterintuitive to how people think about Israel, because they think that politics is very much on the surface. You have uh, people talk about politics all the time in the news, in, the, in cafes, and then you have sometimes attacks on Israel. So people experience these things and they believe that their lives are political. My, my argument is that because of this neoliberal separation of the private and the public, people first and foremost experience their lives as private lives. And then mm -hmm. politics enters into their lives as something which is external to them, something that is alien to them, something that interrupts their lives. And this is the conditions more and more, not obviously not in Gaza, but in Ramallah, you can talk, start seeing this as well. And obviously with Palestinian living abroad in other places. But uh, you can see, start talking about Palestinian kind of lives who even despite the uh, certain limitations of the occupation still can lead lives that are separated from the political and 
the political simply influences them, kind of uh, intervenes in their, in their lives, but they still live a private kind of life. This is obviously not as clear-cut in Palestine as it is in Israel. What this means is that it's very difficult to develop politics and kind of political uh, uh, campaigns, as you can see the struggling, the struggling left in Israel as well, that it's very difficult to mobilize people because they first and foremost live private lives. So this is how my book kind of talks about uh, the broader problems of the Israeli and Palestinian uh, society. And where do you see neoliberalism heading in the Israeli context right now? My sense is that uh, in, the, in the absence of any serious counter-movement, you will see neoliberalism deepening uh, in both Israel and Palestine because the problem, as we know, that the liberal left uh, all over the world, uh, or in many parts of the world at least, is acquiescing to the neoliberal ideology while trying in, in some ways to kind of make it more moderate. But the left has yet to offer a substantial kind of alternative. You see this beginning a little bit in England and beginning a little bit in, in Israel with some kind of socialist idea that are coming up. And it's a big question whether these socialist ideas will have a hold in kind of going back to a more uh, maybe updated version of the welfare state. But absent of these kind of campaigns, you will see neoliberalism deepening. All right, uh, Dr. Koenlistik, we've taken uh, a lot of your time. Can you tell us in closing what project or maybe projects you are currently working on? Yes. Um, well, I would be very interested in extending the, the study from Israel and Palestine to other parts of the world. So my, my second book will talk about specifically ethnic subjects in Israel and France. So I will work on Mizrahi literature and French Algerian literature or North African uh, literature in France. And then next, the next project hopefully will be a project where I will take this theory and we'll try to see whether it works in other places in the world, such as Morocco, Nigeria, China, we talked about Brazil. So to see whether the theory that I developed in the Israeli-Palestinian case can indeed be, uh, help us understand other places around the world. So these will be the projects that I will try to think about. Sounds like much to uh, be looking forward to. Uh, Dr. Kohen Lustig, thank you so much for joining us. And again, congratulations on the publication of you. Thank you, Jacob. It was a pleasure.